Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our lead pastor, Chris Figueretti, for this week's message. Welcome back. Last week, we left Jesus gathered in the living room with his 12 disciples and whoever else was in that household in their little home base in Capernaum, and he was teaching them some mind-blowing concepts. He, he was teaching them about how if you want to be great, you need to serve. Uh, it, it, it's different than what they had learned their whole lives, that greatness was associated with position and power and influence and the control of other people. And Jesus is like, no, 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 we're not going for those things. We're going for being servants, not just doing survey things, but actually having a servant's heart, taking on the posture of a servant. Jesus demonstrated that for us um, by becoming one of us and, and laying down his life on the cross. And then he's, he, he's like, and it's not, it's not about exclusivity either, because John was like, well, Jesus, we saw a guy casting out demons in your name. And, and, uh, and we told him to cut it out. Now, did Jesus cast out demons? Yes, he did. Did his disciples cast out demons? Yes, he did. They were pushing back the kingdom of darkness. And so this was part of what Jesus was doing. But when they saw somebody else doing it, they're like, whoa, 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 you're not one of us. You can't do that. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. We're not turf protecting. This is not about exclusivity. The circle is bigger than you think. We're going to welcome those who are for us. And this guy, he's for us. And anybody else who does the works of Jesus in the name of Jesus, they're not going to be against Jesus. So Jesus is like, they're on our team. And he's blowing their minds. He's bursting their paradigms. And he is helping them get their heads around things. They need to have their heads around before he leaves because he's on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. Now, Jesus continues, and it's really important that you understand, we're still in the living room. We're still primarily, he's still primarily talking to the 12. And, um, and he goes into the next topic, which is this in, in Mark chapter 9 in verse 42. If you have your Bible, you can, you can turn there. But he teaches them, he teaches the disciples, this is how you go to hell. And this is what he says in verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, and remember, Jesus had pulled a child in as an object lesson, so he probably still has this child with him. So we're talking about kids. I think we're talking about new or, or young believers, those who believe in me, he says, to stumble. It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Now, just to be absolutely clear, Jesus isn't, doesn't say a small millstone. He says specifically a really big millstone. Like if you ever driven by those driveways where there's, there's millstones out in front, people use them as decorations and stuff. This would be a big one. Like, so get your head around that picture. Tie something about a rock about this big around your neck and be thrown into the sea. That doesn't go well. It's bad in Jesus's terminology. In verse 43, he goes on, if your hand causes you to stumble... Cut it off. So he switches gears. If you cause someone else to stumble, you're better off to be thrown in the sea with a millstone. He said, now, if something causes you to stumble, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, Pluck it out. 
It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm that that eat where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. That last part's a quote from the book of Isaiah. So what we see here, first of all, I just need to point this out. Jesus clearly, clearly believes in hell. He believes that hell is real. He believes that hell is eternal and that, that it is a bad thing, that nobody really wants to go there. All right? Just wanted to say that because he, he hits that pretty hard here. Now, what I want to do is I want to come back around to the top and deal with causing these little ones who believe in me to stumble. I want to deal with that. And then at the end, I'm going to come back around and talk about cutting off hands and feet. All right. So that's how this this message is going to break down. So in verse 42, he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Now the question here, and I think a lot of the misunderstanding here, is what does it mean to cause someone to stumble? I think there's a a lot of misunderstanding about this uh, in the body of Christ and a lot of misapplication of this scripture. Um, It's an important scripture. He's talking about children. He's talking about people who are young in their faith, not wanting to cause them to stumble. Another modern translation says, if it caused someone to sin. Now, you can read that and you go, if I cause anybody to sin, you know, what can I do to cause, anything you could do to cause somebody, that's not what Jesus is talking about. There's a nuance here that is so important to understand. Uh, Jesus, because we know that sin doesn't send us to hell. Like Jesus died on the cross to pay for the forgiveness of our sins. And if we confess our sins and we repent from our sins, he forgives our sins. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness and God doesn't see our sin anymore. And and we are okay with God based on his righteousness, not our own. If I screw up, God is faithful to forgive me if I'll turn back to God. So if someone sins... Um, it's, not, it's not the end of the world. We're all human beings. We're all going to struggle with sin from time to time. What Jesus is talking about here is causing someone to fall away completely and walk away from Jesus, walk, cut off the relationship with Jesus. Three times, he says in the, the second part of this passage, that you know, they end up in hell. Well, we don't end up in hell because we screwed up and, and, and made a mistake and sinned and, you know, God forgives our sin. So this raises a theological debate that rages in the church uh, and has for, for hundreds if not thousands of years. And that is the issue of once you're saved, are you always saved? Uh, it's, it's referred to as the, the, the argument of internal security or once saved, always saved. And, um, and it would seem here that Jesus is indicating, because of who he's teaching and because of what he's saying, that we have the capacity to walk away from our relationship with him. Now, the Bible is very, very clear. So hear me on this. We cannot earn our salvation. Our salvation is a gift from God. It is his grace. It is what Jesus did on the cross applied to our lives through faith so that no one can boast. It's not by works. It's not based on keeping Old Testament laws and and all of that stuff. 
But the Bible also, and it does this a lot, there are these points where there are two concepts that we have to kind of hold in tension and work out in, in tension. The Bible is also very clear that just knowing things about Jesus doesn't save us either. James says the demons believe. They actually probably have better theology than you do about who Jesus is and what he did, but they shudder. They're not going to spend eternity in heaven with God. They're demons. They, they know the right things, but they are not living for God. They're not following Jesus. You know, the other, side, the other thing is, is like we think, well, if I pray a prayer, you know, if I come to a church service and I'm moved and I come up front or maybe just sitting in my seat and I just pray and I ask Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, I've got my ticket to heaven. It's my golden ticket. And I'm going to make it to heaven and it doesn't really matter what I do. But we know that's not, that's a game and, and, and that's not necessarily true either. What we do matters. We're just not going to earn our way. To heaven, But if we're not following Jesus, if we're not in Christ, then we got a problem. So what is, what, what is he addressing here? Well, I think Jesus is indicating that we can walk away, and people do. In 1 Timothy 6.10, uh, the Apostle Paul says these words, he's, and you, these are going to be familiar. He says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, people often think that says money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have what? Wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. They have traded that first place position in their life. They've taken God out and put money in, and they have wandered away from God pursuing money. We can wander away from God if we don't guard our hearts. Now here's the problem, and I hear, think here's what Jesus is getting at. When we embrace sin, when we uh, stop struggling with sin, and we all struggle with sin, but when we stop struggling with sin and we say, you know what, this is just kind of who I am, and I'm okay with it, and I think God's okay with it. God's not okay with it. And you don't get to make the rules. He does, because he's God, and you're not. But when you stop struggling, you're just like, nope, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend my sin and I'm going to live in my sin. What will happen is your heart will grow cold and callous to the work of the Spirit in your life. And you will eventually end up walking away from God. Now, again, he's speaking to the 12 apostles primarily here in this teaching. Judas, who has gone out. With, you know, was sent out with the 12 and, and preached and cast out demons in Jesus' name and saw healings and everything else and power through him. Judas, who was so trusted by the disciples and by Jesus that he was made the treasurer, right? Judas ends up walking away from Jesus completely in the end. This is a reality that I believe Jesus is addressing here. Now, all of that, I mean, it's a lot, of, a lot of background. All of that comes down to causing someone to stumble, causing someone to fall away completely and walk away from God, causing someone to do something or believe something that destroys their faith. When I was in the ninth grade, I had a biology teacher who was an evangelical atheist, 
And his goal, his stated goal, was to undermine the faith of all the Christian kids in his class. And every day he would come with another fact, another figure. Uh, you know, he would lay out evolutionary theory in a very skewed uh, way to try and undermine the faith of the students in his class. And many he did. And many he did. Now, I have friends who either were in uh, college and university education environments, uh, and, uh, and they tell me that there are tons of professors in those environments who that is their goal, is to reshape reshape the next generation away from faith, away from Christianity and into the, so whatever image they have. And so they set out to do that and they enjoy doing that. And Jesus is saying, look, if you're, if you're trying to lead people away from me and into a lifestyle where they're walking away from me instead of walking towards me, you're better off having a millstone around your neck and swimming in the ocean. It's not good. You know, I, I, another thing that that we see in our culture is, is the sexualization of children. Um, you know, we look at our world around us, and if you're, if you're older, you, you understand. If you're younger, you've just kind of grown up with what you've grown up with. But if you're older, you understand that our world has not always been as sexualized as it is today, and especially with children, especially with children. And, and a lot of this goes back to a guy named Sigmund Freud, who was a psychologist, who his theory was that, that uh, the primary motivating factor for human beings was sexual in nature, and that human beings were sexual creatures going all the way back to infancy. And then in the 1940s, there was a guy named Kinsey, he was a professor out in Indiana, and he took Freud's theories and started doing experiments with them. And he, in the process, um, molested or had molested hundreds of children. Um, they, um, his, his, his methods have been debunked. Uh, he had a very specific agenda that he was trying to affirm, and so he set things up such that his research would affirm his, um, his agenda and his, his narrative. Uh, and it was ugly and it was bad. And and yet it was his research that set the groundwork for the sexual revolution of the 1960s. And what he wanted, what he proposed, what he did was the sexualization of small children down to infants and exposing them to sexual stimulation and sexual things that kids shouldn't be exposed to and then saying this is normal and we need to do this in our society. Well, why do I share this? Because today we have something in our world called comprehensive sex education or comprehensive sexual education. It's being proposed and, uh, and pushed forward by the United Nations around the world. It's being proposed and pushed forward and making its way into classrooms all over our country today by the National Education Association. Comprehensive sex education is built on the theories of Freud, the studies of Kinsey, and basically seeks to sexualize the next generation when they are very, very young, before they're even thinking about sexual things. It's horrific, and if I read to you the details, and I'll read to you some of them, you would be mortified. According to the United, Fam United Families International, they said this about CSE, or Comprehensive Sex Ed. 
It claims to be evidence-based, age-appropriate, medically accurate, and gender-sensitive, an essential part of human rights to reduce teen pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases, and to prevent bullying. It's sold as a way to promote reproductive health, prevent rape, and even as a way to promote abstinence. But a short overview of any of the curriculums attached to comprehensive sex education reveals the true nature of CSE. At this point, if you've got kids in the room, I suggest you cover their ears. This is what it says. CSE promotes sexual rights for children, young children. It encourages them to seek sexual pleasure through masturbation, out of wedlock sexual relationships, same-sex relationships, and to avoid pregnancy through anal and oral sex, free birth control, and trips to clinics for abortions and other emergency contraceptives without parental knowledge or consent. You're like, in our country? Yeah. Now, I don't know to what extent that exists in our local school systems, but I'm telling you the pressure to get it into there or into our local school systems is enormous from the NEA and several other organizations who oversee education in our country. Now, why? Why would they do that? What is the motivation? Well, I mean, it goes back to Kinsey, it goes back to Freud, all of that. But I think it's bigger than that, and it's probably a sermon for another day. But there's a battle going on in our country between good and evil, between a desire for totalitarianism and and between that and freedom. And those who propose these things come down on the side of totalitarianism and they know that if they can, can uh, undermine the faith of the next generation, if they can break them sexually, they can control them. And Jesus would say in that situation and, and, and make them walk away from faith and God, which they have done in some spectacular ways over the last 20 years. And Jesus would say, yeah, they'd be better off having a millstone tied around their neck and being thrown in the sea. Bad stuff. So, that's that. That's heavy. You can take your hands off the ears of your children, by the way. Now, the other side of this, because I know most of you are, I would suggest or think that all of us are going, that's horrific, I would never do that. Good. How does this apply to me? Well, there's another side of this, and I want to speak to the Christians uh, in the audience, uh, because I think it's important we understand what it doesn't mean to cause somebody to stumble. Causing, some, or causing somebody to stumble doesn't mean that we never offend anyone. It has been kind of interpreted that way. Causing someone to stumble doesn't mean that we never do anything that can be misinterpreted or somebody could look at and go, well, that, that means that I can go do that even though they probably shouldn't. You know, over the years, uh, you know, some Christian groups have said, you know, playing cards, you shouldn't ever play cards because somebody could see you playing cards and take that as an endorsement for gambling, and then they're going to go off and gamble, and that's sin, and you cause them to stumble. That is not causing them to stumble. I, um, 
I, as you, you know, uh, if you've been around for any length of time, I'm a huge fan of going to Drover's for chicken wings. I love chicken wings. And unfortunately, um, beer gives me a headache. But I'm just going to declare from the stage right now, I love beer. It makes me a jolly good fellow. Um, and I have no problem with drinking a beer other than it gives me a headache, so I don't. But Christians over the, over the ages, or really over the last hundred years or so, would have said, well, if you go to Drover's and you have a beer and somebody sees you having a beer, now they don't know how many beers you had, and so they might see, see that that is you endorsing that drinking is okay or drinking too much is okay, and then they're going to go have a beer, and, and you've caused them to stumble. That's not causing somebody to stumble. I think we get this from, uh, in, in some regards, from the old King James uh, translation of the Bible, 1 Thessalonians 5.22, um, and King James reads this way, abstain from all appearances of evil. That would be another verse that we would pull out and say, see? But a more accurate translation would, would be this, abstain from every form of evil. Of course we should abstain from every form of evil. But man, you cannot, you cannot manage every possible appearance, right? You know, people who tend in this direction tend to be legalists. And legalism, as we've covered in this series, is basically rules based on the Bible, but not found in the Bible. We, we, you know, there's a group of Christians who really like rules. They're kind of rules-oriented people. And they say, well, the Bible says this, so we're going to build up this rule and this rule and this rule to keep you from violating this principle because God clearly didn't have enough room to write to get it all in there. So we're going to help round it out for him. And then you have more rules than God. And that's a problem. All right, some of you are really uncomfortable at this point, and that's okay. Now, when you're with someone who is offended by a behavior or would be led astray by your indulgence in a behavior that's not a sin for you, you should absolutely abstain from that behavior at that point. If I go out to, to eat with a a friend who's a recovering alcoholic, and I know that alcohol is a temptation for them, I'm not going to order a drink. I shouldn't. I mean, that's what love requires of me, right? Last week when we read in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We're not going to knowingly, intentionally cause somebody to uh, wrestle with temptation unnecessarily. I will subjugate my freedom for their, you know, for their benefit. That's what love requires. But here's where this goes bad. And here's where, where this has gone bad historically. And it's when we live our lives paranoid that we might offend some imaginary person somewhere or we might tempt some person somewhere so we never experience the freedom that Christ died to give, give us in the first place. That's not what we're called to. That's not causing someone to stumble. If someone goes off and does that, if, some, if something I do and you have a problem with or is a temptation for you and you go out and do it because I did it, it's not my fault. But if I know we're together, I will gladly set aside my freedom for you. 
This is another one of those. This whole sermon is a sermon of tensions that we manage, isn't it? Well, let's bring this home a little bit. Um, These little ones, you know, like I said, new Christians, I think kids. Clearly, Jesus had some kids with him. And I want to talk to parents for a minute. And even if you're not a parent, this is, this, these principles still apply. What causes our kids to stumble? What causes our kids ultimately to walk away from God, bail on him? And I've got four things for you. You might want to write these down. The first one is this, harshness, harshness. Colossians 3, verse 20 through 21 says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So that's the command for the kids. And then it says, fathers, and really we can just put parents in there. He's speaking to a patriarchal culture and society. Fathers, or parents, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Don't wear your kids out. Don't be that overbearing parent. To embitter means to stir up, provoke, irritate, or exasperate. And guys, you're going to have moments where you're going to irritate your kids. If you have teenagers, it's a foregone conclusion, right? There are, there are moments you're going to have interactions and arguments where they're going to walk away and roll their eyes and all of that. It's what he's not talking about avoiding all of that. That's going to happen. He's talking about a pattern of being a nitpicker, a pattern of having standards that are unreachable, a pattern of forcing a kid to be something that God didn't make them to be because you want them to live up to your expectation. You're going to wear them out and you're going to exasperate them and they're going to walk away from the faith. In Ephesians 6, 4, it says, fathers, do not exasperate your children again. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. If the standard's always beyond their reach, you know, well, I know you got a 4-5, but you really need to get a 5-0. And they just can't. They're going to walk away. If, if your personality is so different from their personality, like you're the neat neck and they're like the slob, right? You go into their room and you can see a portion of the floor, that's a win, right? That's a win. But, but if they have to be as neat as you are, they're never going to make it. And you're going to wear them out. Or if you're constantly correcting and correcting and overcorrecting because they just can't hit your standards. And you say things like, well, you're going to thank me for this someday. They're not going to thank you for that someday. They're going to spend a lot of time with a counselor working through that someday. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have standards. It doesn't mean we don't raise our kids. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. We do, absolutely. But we don't wear them out. We're not harsh. Now, if you're a parent, if you're a human being, this is probably a blind spot for you. We never see our own harshness. You know where you're going to see your harshness? In your kids' eyes. Look in their eyes. Look at their hearts. And are you wearing them out? Are your standards unrealistic? Are you picking your battles or are you fighting everything? Picking battles. I don't know that that's in the Bible, but it's smart. 
Are you overprotecting your kids? You know, we live in the era of helicopter parents where we try and shelter our kids from everything. That's something else that will cause them to walk away. I see it over and over again when they get out into the real world and they've not been exposed to anything difficult or anything that has challenged their thinking, then they just go, woohoo, and they and they walk away. It's like raising a plant in a greenhouse, this perfect environment, and then you raise it to maturity and you take it out and you plant it in the ground and it it doesn't have any of the defenses or the ability to adapt to, to the weather or anything else. The same that we do the same thing with kids when we're overprotective. And that can feel overbearing and smothering as well, and that can wear our kids out. So, harshness. The second way that we cause our children to stumble is defaulting to spiritual self-direction. Spiritual self-direction. I'm going to let my kid decide on their own what they want to do with faith. I'm just going to let them pick and they can decide whether they want to go to church or not or whatever else. Guys, how much sense does it make for us to allow our kids to just self-direct in the most significant, eternally consequential area of their lives when Well, if you've raised middle schoolers, you don't let them choose what they're going to do with their personal hygiene. Like, when's the last time you took a bath? Oh, I don't know, three days ago. Go get in the shower, brush your teeth. You know, we don't allow them to, I'm just going to self-direct with my school performance. No, we're going to push them. We're going to, to shape them. We're going to help our kids develop. We call it raising children. We don't let our kids play video games all night and sleep all day. And if you do... You probably need to go back and listen to this sermon a second time. No, having no spiritual standards, no spiritual direction, guys, it's a, it's a recipe for disaster. The Bible's very clear about this. In Proverbs 2 or 22, 6, it says, Start children off, or raise children, or bring children up in the way they should go, and even when they're old. They will not turn from it. We're supposed to raise our kids, guys, and especially in the area of spiritual development. Proverbs 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Now, some people will pull this out and use this as a defense of spanking, and I don't really think this is a great a great scripture for defending spanking or not spanking or I do time out or whatever. That's not the, the question. This is, a, this is about discipline. If we love our children, we discipline them, we structure their lives, we help them move in the direction they should go and when they are older, they won't depart from it. That's your job if you're a parent without wearing them out, obviously, and with lots of love. Discipline is love. Hebrews Verse 12, the writer, or chapter 12, verse 5, the writer of Hebrews says this, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, our heavenly Father, his discipline in our lives, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines who? The one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Discipline and structure and standards are important. Spiritual self-direction is a recipe for disaster. It is a recipe for your kid to wonder. Discipline, structure, and standards are important. So is love, laughter, fun, and encouragement. 
But you can't just take your hands off and go, poo. All right. The third way to cause your kids to, stand, uh, to stumble is hypocrisy and mixed messages. Hypocrisy and mixed messages. If anybody sees the real you, it's your kids. Right? I mean, they know who you are when nobody's looking because they're looking. You can tell them all day long you should be honest, but if you're not honest, they see it and they can sniff a hypocrite from a mile away. If you're telling them they should be pure sexually, but you're watching Netflix originals, TV, MA, soft porn, it's actually crossing over into hard porn now, and you're, you're watching that at home and they, they see that, they see that. They know, hypocrite. If you tell them they need to love and respect others and they see you treat your spouse in a disrespectful way, and you know what? I don't know about you. Let me ask you. We'll find out. I know at least, well, how many of us have believe in love and respect, but have disrespected our spouses. Am I the only one? I'm not. We all have. We all, because we're all human, we all fall short, right? But when I go and apologize to my, my wife for disrespecting her, I also need to apologize to my kids for not living up to my ideals so that they don't look at me and go, oh, he's just a hypocrite, but they understand I'm trying. I'm working towards that. Be careful what you teach your kids by what you do. You know, you can teach your kids that church and spiritual development are really important. But if you choose to go to the game on Sunday morning because they're playing some kind of club sport rather than come to church, what you're teaching them is church is really important except when there's a game. So when they get to college where they get out on their own, they're going to believe and live out. The church is really important, except when I was up late last night, or except when I have something fun to do, or except when I have a test tomorrow and I need to study for. Because they're going to live out the values you taught them, not just the ones you said, but the ones you lived out. Because they're watching. They're watching your commitment keeping. They're watching how you handle your sexuality. They're watching how you handle your integrity and your honesty and your spiritual commitment and so many other things. And if you are just a blatant hypocrite, you're going to cause your kids to stumble because they can sniff that out from a mile away. Fourth way to cause your kids to stumble real quickly is just legalism. We've already kind of covered that. Rules based on the Bible but not found in the Bible. Like if you have more rules than God, you will drive your kids away from God. So, you know, balance the rules and the, and, and, and the raising of your kids and the discipline with, like I said, love and laughter and fun and encouragement and blessing. All right. So that's causing one of these little ones to stumble now I want to shift gears real quick and talk about, about what causes us to stumble. And that's exactly what Jesus does in verse 43. He says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. 
And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, I don't know any Christians who are walking around with one eye because they plucked their eye out or one hand because they cut a hand off. It's, you know, Jesus is, is making an extreme statement here to prove a point about sin. What causes us to stumble? What causes you to stumble? What, what will ultimately cause you to completely walk away from God? And, and as I said earlier, if we continue to engage in sin over and over again, if we willingly give ourselves to sin over and over again, our hearts will grow callous towards the work of the Holy Spirit and we will eventually walk away from God. And that ain't good. You know, different people are tempted by different things. You're, you're probably tempted by something differently than I'm tempted by. Another way to say this is, you know, a fishing analogy is different lures catch different fish. Different fish are attracted to different things. And it's not the, the fault of the lure. It's the fish's appetite that ends up hooking the fish in the end. What's your lure? What's the thing that, what's your appetite that you're drawn to? Some people are drawn to drugs and alcohol, Right? And Jesus is saying, look, if, if, if that's, the, that's your lure, if that's the thing that causes you to sin over and over and over again, you need to do whatever you need to do to get it out of your life. Cut it out of your life. Cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, cut off your feet, right? Do whatever it takes, you know? It would be if you, you're, you wrestle with alcoholism, you're not going to have just one beer, so don't have any beer. Don't have alcohol in the house. Don't go to bars. Don't hang out with people while they're drinking. Whatever you get, the, get your, your old alcohol or, or your old drinking buddies out of your life and get some new friends. Don't go, you know, if, if you're wrestling with addiction, you might need to move to a new town. You might need to find an entire new set of people to do life with. Whatever it takes, don't just keep going back. It's that important. Sexual temptation is your temptation. If that's the appetite that, that drives you, the thing that will cause you to stumble ultimately, you might want to not leave swimsuit issues around the house. You might want to get some software for your phone and your computer and an accountability partner so that if you do find yourself starting to, to waver into lust and pornography, that your accountability partner gets a text that says, hey, Bob is about to, and he calls and goes, what are you doing, Bob? You're like, that's ridiculous. That's invasive. So it's cutting off your hand. Ultimately, if you continue to entertain that and continue and continue, your heart's going to harden. You're going to end up in a place you don't want to be. If shopping is your problem, don't go to the mall. You don't want to hang out in malls if shopping's your problem. You want to stay off Amazon, right? Cut up your credit cards. Cut up, you can't live without a credit card. It's hard to live without a hand, too. Cut off your credit Cut off your credit card. Cut your credit card up. Do whatever it takes to stop because if you're not stopping, 
You need to do whatever it takes. It's that serious. It's that significant. If greed is your issue, probably stop hanging out with people who have lots of money and lots of stuff that tempt you to want to go buy lots of stuff that you don't have the money to buy. If food is your issue, you know, only healthy food in the house. Stop watching the Food Network because that's just going to feed that internal appetite and desire. It's food porn. Stop it. But I enjoy it. Well, that's kind of the point. Stop it. It's going to kill you. Jesus gives us a prescription here for dealing with the temptations that undermine our lives and ultimately will undermine our relationship with him. Just cut it off. Get radical. Do whatever it takes. The Apostle Paul addresses this in 2 Timothy 2, 22. He says, flee the evil desires of youth. Don't walk away, run away. In 1 Corinthians 16, 18, he addresses it as well. Sexual immorality was a big issue in Corinth. And he says, flee, flee, run away. Get out of there as quickly as you can. Don't go near sexual immorality. Because if you feed that appetite, it will grow. Whatever temptation you have, radically run from it. And it doesn't mean that you won't struggle. It doesn't mean that you won't, from time to time, even sin in that area. And thank God for his grace and his mercy. But if we indulge it, and we continue to indulge it, and we don't do whatever it takes to deal with it in our lives, it will ultimately cause us to stumble and walk away from God. Now, here's what I know. There are a lot of people who are listening to this message right now, and you're like, he wrote that just for me. Because there are a lot of us who are struggling with sin, who are playing with sin that will ultimately destroy our souls. And you haven't been willing to cut it off because you kind of enjoy it. But I'm here to warn you, and so is Jesus. It will eventually harden your heart. It will eventually lead to your downfall and demise, and it's not worth it. So today, let me challenge you to deal with it. Deal with it. Surrender every part of your life today. Do whatever it takes to avoid that temptation. And if you've accepted it and said, God is good with it because I'm good with it, reevaluate that. God has amazing grace for you. He really does. He has the capacity to heal and restore and forgive. But we have an amazing capacity to wreck our own lives if we're not living them submitted to him. And we're not willing to walk away from the things that will sabotage us. Choose to walk away today and choose to lean into him today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, even when it's hard, uh, even when it challenges us, even when it's nuanced and, there's, and there's, there's tensions to manage, Lord, it is so good, it is so life-giving, it is so what we need to do, what we need to know, and how we need to live. Lord, I pray that your word would land in each heart just the way it's supposed to, and each one of us would make the decision to do whatever it is we need to do to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.